Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the health you need a doctor, but the sick, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, one of the things that lockdown has brought to the uh, surface of my heart is the passion I have to be a fault finder. I have a passion to be a fault finder. The, the inner police that there is in my mind and spirit have got quite tired because they've been so busy during lockdown one and two and three. My inner police have had some of the busiest days of, of the year of my life. I mean, this is what I've been doing. I'm very quick to uh, notice when people are not wearing their masks properly. I'm very quick to notice when people are not two meters away from me and my family. I'm very quick to notice when someone is clapping for the NHS in lockdown number one and when their doorway is empty. And not because those things are not important, because they are. Not because they're not important for people's safety and my own safety, because they are. But what's revealed to me is the fact that I love using whatever means I can as a measuring stick. I love comparing. I love just noticing when people are doing things that are wrong, as long as it makes me feel that I'm doing things that are right. My heart works on merit, not on mercy. My heart likes keeping score as long as I win. When I'm not winning, I choose just to mumble the standards. We can uh, compare ourselves horizontally. We can function in our hearts on merits, not on mercy, but the danger is, and it's a huge danger, is when we turn that same comparison and that same method of operating from the horizontal to the vertical. And we start to think that God operates in that same currency as well. What about if God, what about if God operates in the same way? What about if God keeps score so that when we are doing things that are good and healthy and right and worthy of merit, we're doing well, we're accruing credit. But if we're not doing those things, then God will come for us. We can think like that. God is a God who keeps score. Last week, I introduced you to this wonderful coffee machine, the Sage Oracle Touch. Now, this cost £2,000. This is the top bean-to-cup coffee machine that was available in 2020. And I'm reliably informed that, as I told you, that the coffee machine is the fifth germiest device in our homes, that many coffee machines have been cleaned in the week that has passed. But, but this week, I don't want to introduce you to a coffee machine. I want to induce, re, well, reacquaint you and introduce you to the Pharisees. The Pharisees we, we've met in, in Matthew chapter 9. 
The Pharisees were spiritual performers. They were people who didn't just have their heart on their sleeves, but they had their religious record, their religious merit on their sleeve. And they wanted every single person who was around them to know about it. Let's reorient ourselves with these sentences that you can see on the screen. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, that's Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus, verse 12, overhears what they are saying and responds, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he says to the Pharisees, go and do some homework. Go and learn what this means. And then he says, sentence 13 of Matthew 9, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Here are the Pharisees. They knew their Bibles really well, better than you or I perhaps ever will. And yet Jesus says, you, you, you know the Bible, but you don't understand it. You need to go back to school. You need to go back to the Bible and you need to learn what this really means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The way you think I operate with you and the way you operate with other people and with me is wrong. I do not operate with the currency of merit. I work in a completely unique way. When you think of merit, I think of mercy. Go and work out what this means. I take pleasure in mercy. That's what it says in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. We're thinking of the description of God's character in the month of January. We want to flush out all the wrong thinking we have. We want to clean up our minds and hearts. And we want to understand sentences like this. Because if we think incorrectly about wrong, uh, about God, it will affect how we uh, relate to God. This is what Micah 6 verse 8 says. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Notice carefully what God says, he says, I want you to love mercy. I don't just want you to be merciful. I want you to be my people who love me and therefore you love what I love. So you love mercy. You're not someone who acts mercifully in a begrudging way or a mean spirit. You're not reluctant to offer mercy and kindness and grace to people. Remember what we saw last week? To the degree we see the gentle and lowly heart of Jesus, God revealed to us, we will understand what God our Father is like. We saw this from Exodus last week. Our God, seen in Jesus, is merciful and compassionate. He longs to be gracious. It's like Niagara Falls. He is a God who's overflowing with mercy. He's attracted to people who need grace. He doesn't repel them. He doesn't say, wait until you've cleaned yourself up. Wait until you measure up. He's attracted to people who need his grace. He longs to be merciful. He is attracted to people who need his mercy. And he longs today. We'll see this. He's longing to bind up the brokenhearted, to set bones that have been broken and to deal with those who are sin, who are sinful, who are needy and who are broken. That's the kind of God we have. And this little interaction with Matthew reveals God's character. Once again, we can see that he has a heart that is gentle 
and fully dispositioned to the needy, to the lost, to the broken. He's a God who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. And these two images come forth in this interaction he has with Matthew. Here's the first. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Now, in these verses, we meet a man who might have looked a bit like this. We meet Matthew. Let me tell you about Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. Matthew has sold his services to the highest bidder, which was the Roman government. They were the ruling power of the time. And under their authority, it was his job to extract as much money as possible from their subjects, who were Matthew's comrades, Matthew's people. They were the Jewish people. All the money that Matthew accrued, he gave the majority of it anyway to the ruling class, the Romans, and it enabled them to build a better infrastructure to get more armed forces and services, which in turn enabled them to occupy the Jewish people in a better, more dominant manner. And on top of that, Matthew did a great job of adding a little bit more on top so that he could feather his own nest. So he was a very, very wealthy man. But as well as wealthy, he would have been despised as well as wealthy and despised. He would have been considered unclean and he would have been rejected by the people who he helped keep under the heel of the Roman army. So he was lonely and wealthy and unclean and despised and rejected. So his only friends, these verses teach and remind us, verse 10, verse 11, would be the sinners. His own people would reject him. His own people would hold him at arm's length. But when Matthew gets his life turned upside down and changed by Jesus, he leaves everything to follow him. And he throws what Mark and Luke tell us is a great banquet in his own home. Look at verse 10. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining at the table. They were having a great feast, a super time with Jesus. Now, the sinners were the religious outcasts. The sinners were people who were flippant towards God's law. The, the uh, were not just flippant towards God's law. They would have what we shall say in case children are tuned in as well. They would have had notorious occupations. We'll leave it just as that. These were the lowly people of society. But notice what Matthew wants to do. Matthew cannot wait to introduce his sinful friend, his outcast friends, his lowly friends, people whose occupation was more in the nighttime, perhaps, than in the day. He cannot wait to introduce them to his new friend, Jesus. And because he's a man of wealth and a man of means, he throws a great party and says, you must come and meet my new found friend, Jesus can't wait for you to meet him. He's turned my life upside down and he's got a heart for people like me. And that means he's got a heart for people like you too. And so they came near and they would have listened to his teaching and they would have shared a drink together and shared a meal together. And the needy and the outcast and the lowly and the poor and the despised and the rejected flocked to Jesus. And look at the Pharisees, verse 11, the Pharisees are grumbling because of the audacity of King Jesus to eat with these lowly people, people who the Pharisees thought no one should have anything to do with, let alone this rabbi, Jesus. 
And John mentioned the same verse in speaking to the children. What Jesus was doing was scandalous to the Pharisees. He's supposed to be a rabbi sent from God. He's supposed to just be teaching them. I mean, that maybe we would find offensive enough, but he's not just teaching. He's sharing a meal with them. He's relaxing with them. And so they accuse Jesus. We see this in Matthew 11, verse 19. Jesus is quoting what someone else has said. The son of man, as a title for Jesus as judge, came eating and drinking. And they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. And here's the great, profound and yet precious irony. Other people are casting aspersions at Jesus using this uh, claim. Look at what Jesus is doing to, to reduce his credibility and to attack his divinity. And Jesus turns it on his head and turns the phrase on its head and says, that's exactly why I've come. I am the friend of sinners. I am the friend of the lowly. You're trying to discredit me, but that's exactly why I've come. You've understood why I've come. What they meant to uh, cast aspersions on his character, Jesus turns on its head and says, I am a friend of sinners. Now, what does that mean? That's at the heart of this passage in Matthew 9. What does it mean that Jesus is a friend of sinners? What does it mean? It's an invitation to everyone in the world. Jesus is saying, you're the very reason I've come. I've come to enter into a deep, lasting, committed friendship with you. I want to forge a relationship with you. I've crossed the space-time continuum. I've journeyed from the throne room of heaven to the dusty streets of Jerusalem to forge a friendship with you. I'll do whatever it takes and I pay all the costs and I want it not just to be a passing thing. I want it to be an ongoing reality. The king of the universe says, I want to be your friend. What does it mean? Three things. It means affection. It means affection, friendship. Friendship is about affection. Now, be honest with me. Have you ever, when you could have people around your house, right? When you could have people around your house in the uh, early part of 2020 and, and all those days beforehand, have you ever had that painful moment, perhaps when a friend has come round, you've invited them to dinner or breakfast, or they've come in for a cuppa, but you've not been able to wait until they've left. They've said something to you that's offended you. Perhaps they've heard you in a way you didn't mean and you can't wait for the meal to end. You can't wait for the door to close. You just want them to leave because it's so embarrassing. Have you ever felt like that? You don't enjoy their company any longer. You just want them to go. The gospel tells us that Jesus enjoys our company. Jesus enjoys being with you and he never wants you to leave because Jesus is the friend of sinners. Here he is with sinful people. Here he is with outcasts and lowly and poor and despised and culturally marginalized people. And it's a wonderful picture of the heart of God in Jesus, that he has done everything so that he can be affectionate with you and close with you and intimate with you and relate with you as he's the best friend you'll ever know.
Jesus doesn't scowl at sinners. He loves us. He longs to be in a real lasting relationship with us where we enjoy his company as much as he enjoys ours. That's why he invites Matthew to know him and Matthew leaves everything to spend time with him. Remember and the account of another, not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. Remember the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, we meet this short guy who was the chief tax collector and he wasn't wealthy. He was very wealthy. He was Matthew and a few grades up. He sat in a tree because he was isolated. And Jesus says these words to him. But how did he say it? He he says uh, in chapter 19, verse five of Luke's gospel, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Hurry and come down because I want to have a meal with you. Now, you can say those words in a number of different ways. Hurry and come down. Perhaps you could say it as a police officer to someone who's infringing a COVID rule. Get down here now. You've broken the rules and there's one destination for you. There's a fine coming in your direction. You can say that perhaps as a parent. I've called you three times. It's tea time. Get down here now. Does Jesus say it like that to Zacchaeus? I don't think he does because of how Zacchaeus responds. The countenance of Jesus is going forth in affection to the lowly, the needy, and the downcast. It's not a one-off to Matthew. His permanent disposition, his ongoing countenance is for the lowly and the needy and the brokenhearted and the weary. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. Hurry and come down. I want to be with you. It's the posture of his spirit. And so Zacchaeus comes down in a hurry, safely, with his tummy towards the tree, navigating down the tree as his parents have taught him to climb a tree and to dismount a tree. But he comes down at once because he's welcomed gladly by Jesus Christ. Friends, that's the Jesus who calls to Matthew and who calls to us and who is the friend of sinners. It's his heart's desire to dwell with lowly and outcast and needy people. He's always inviting people and his countenance is always the same. He's gentle and he's lowly. It's also about uh, affection as much as it's about devotion. It's about devotion. Here is Jesus and he is a friend who sticks closely to us and he never ever gives up. Now, don't we want friends like that? People to whom we can reveal our greatest fears and our darkest secrets without ever being shunned. Here's another true story. There was once uh, at a meal table, not in this country, where Joe and I got to go out with some friends and they revealed something in their past that made me want to spit an eaten piece of sausage across the table. It was something so shocking that had happened in their past that it surprised me. And at that point in that meal, my inner voice was saying, don't go bright red. Don't spit out the sausage. Don't react in a shock way. Be calm. Remember the gospel. Sometimes people say things to us that are really shocking. Sometimes uh, me, who is reasonably unflappable, I get surprised. I get shocked. I want to say, really? Tell me more. My eyes get bigger. There gets color to my cheeks. 
There's nothing you can say that can shock Jesus. Think of who he is. He knows the inner recesses and depths of your soul. There's nothing you can do to cover up. There's nothing you can do to shock him. He is for you and he'll never drive you away. Jesus is never surprised. He's never caught off guard. He never regrets drawing you to himself, Christian friend, and he'll never push you away. He knows your weaknesses. He knows our naked souls. He never blushes. He never raises an eyebrow. He never wants to change the subject because he's getting awkward. Jesus enjoys us. Jesus bears with us. Jesus sticks with us. Jesus remains close to us. Jesus will always be committed towards us. We are loved deeply. And if we ever doubt that, we need to just remember the cross of Christ. Jesus's cross work shows our, his affections towards us. He's fiercely loyal. He's always forgiving. And he's the best friend you will ever have. If you're lonely, whether you're single, whether you're lonely in a marriage, whether you're lowly because you've been bereaved, Jesus is the closest friend you will ever know and you can ever have. It doesn't matter if you're young, if you're lonely at school, if you're middle-aged or if you're mature, Jesus is the best friend you can ever have. It's about affection, it's about devotion, it's about partnership. John 15, 15 says this, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I call you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are my friends. I'm going to open my heart to you. I'm going to open up my plans and purposes that my father in heaven has shared with me. And I in turn will share with you. It's not just about emotions. It's about coming on board with the kingdom building project of King Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, go and get on with it. He says, come along with me. I will be with you. You will be with me. I want you to understand and get passionate about staying salt. I want you to get passionate about sharing the good news that I have for a lost and needy and sin saturated and struck world not just about forgiveness it's about me removing your sin as far away from the east as from the, the west from you because of the cross of christ this is what friendship with jesus is like he's not far away he's not distant he's not harsh he's not cold god in jesus has come close and he will remain close because of the work of jesus on the cross you never need to be alone because of Jesus Christ. It's about affection and devotion and partnership. And that's just the first image we see in Matthew 9. Here's the second. It's slightly shorter, you'll be revealed, relieved to know. Jesus is the friend of sinners, but Jesus is also the doctor for our souls. He's the doctor for our souls. Now, in befriending sinners like me and like you, Jesus is not someone who puts his head in the sand. He's not someone who turns a blind eye to our sin. He's not a friend who looks the other way to, to say things are just 
fine the way they are. You do not need to change. Jesus does not say that. Sin, sin is a sickness in our souls that he and he alone is here to heal. There is an incurable disease that we all have, and he alone has the vaccine for it. He's the only doctor of our souls that can heal us of this condition. We do not need to go and get vaccinated at Epsom Downs for this condition that we all have, and it's called sin. Jesus doesn't put his head in the sand. He doesn't turn a blind eye. He doesn't turn away. He doesn't give us the cold shoulder, and he's not repulsed by our sin sickness either. Like any good doctor, he draws more closely to those who are in need. That's why he's come. Verse 12 of Matthew 9. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I've come, says Jesus, not for those who convince themselves that they're okay. I've not come for those who think they don't need help. I've not even come for those who think they need a bit of help. I've come for those people who have seen the deep need in their souls. I've come for people like that. I've come for you if you think there are things in your life that you feel shame over. I've come to heal you of that shame and remove it from you because I've paid for your sin on the cross. If there are actions in your past that, that make you blush, that you are determined that your closest friends will never see, I've come for you, Jesus says. If there are desire in your heart to fix yourselves, to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, because you think you've got the resources to make yourself better in 2021 than you were in 2020, I've come for people just like you, says Jesus. I've come to heal you, to restore you. I've come not just to forgive your sin, but to free you from its ongoing power in your life. I've come to heal you from the inside out, says Jesus. It's not a jab in the arm. It's a savior, a rescuer hanging on a cross outside of the city gates of Jerusalem. There's a Puritan called William Bridge. He, he says it like this very helpfully. Jesus, Jesus is the tender surgeon who sets the bones that we have broken with our own sin. Jesus is the tender surgeon who sets the bones that we have broken with our own sin. All the pain that we've inflicted on ourselves, all the uh, damage that we've caused in the lives of others, Jesus can put right because of his work on the cross. Jesus restores us to a relationship with him. And also he can deal with the damage that we've caused to other people as well. I can't put this any better than a sermon I've come across this week. It's an undated sermon, but not an untitled one. And I'm going to read to you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in the 17th and 18th century in central London at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And he wrote a, a sermon called Sinner's Friend. Perhaps we can leave this image up as, as I read. Jesus is both the sinner's friend and the doctor for our souls. And Spurgeon, preaching on Matthew 11, not Matthew 9, 
uses this illustration. Let me read it to you. There's an awful story being told abroad. A murder has been committed and the poor wretch who committed it has tried to end his own life. The policeman and the surgeon are quickly on the spot. One comes there in the interest of law. The other attends in the interest of humanity. The policeman says, man, you are my prisoner. The doctor says, my dear fellow, you are my patient. And now he lays a delicate hand upon the wound and he stops the blood. He applies soft bandages and bending down his ear, he listens to the man's breathing. Taking hold of his hand, he feels his pulse. Gently raising his head, he administers to him some wine, takes him to the hospital, gives the nurse instructions to watch over him and orders that he shall be given good food as he is able to bear it. Day after day, he still visits him and he uses his skill and all his diligence to heal the man's wounds. Is that the way to deal with criminals? Certainly it is not the manner in which the police deal. Their business is to find out all the traces and evidences of his guilt. But the medical attendant is not concerned with the man as an evildoer, but as a sufferer. So it is with the sinner. As the sermon gets to his end, Spurgeon uses that analogy to compare the Old Testament with the New. He says Moses is the officer of the justice who comes to arrest him. The law condemns us. It shows us our sin and our shortcomings. But Christ is the good physician who comes to heal, to redeem those under the law. He delivers those from the penalty of sin. He restores them from self-inflicted injuries. Spurgeon from that psalm is saying, Jesus is the friend of sinners and he's the physician for our souls. The law condemns us. Jesus demonstrates his love in this way. John 15, greater love has no man than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus lays down his life in our place and with his wounds, we are healed. As we come around the table, how do we respond to this love? Here's just a few comments. Have you accepted his friendship? Have you accepted the friendship of Jesus, the doctor of our souls and the friend of sinners? This friendship with Jesus is received through repentance and faith. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance and nothing provokes God's heart so deeply as his kindness despised. Have you rejected the kindness of Jesus or have you responded to it? The way to respond to the kindness of God shown to us in his son, seen on the cross, is to accept the friendship that Jesus offers us. Have you accepted the friendship of King Jesus? Here's the second one, is to live in that friendship. If you've accepted the invitation of King Jesus to live in the friendship, to know God as our creator, our redeemer, but also our friend is a remarkable thing. 
Friendship is not something that just happens at the beginning. When you become a Christian, then it calls. Friendship is something that you can enjoy every day that you know Jesus as your saviour and Lord and King and friend. He's the best friend you can ever know and have. And he invites you into his purposes. But to enjoy his friendship, it means to seek him. It means to trust him. It means to obey him. Are you, am I, being a good friend to Jesus? Do you spend time with him? Do you ignore him? Do you invest in this relationship? What a wonderful opportunity there is in lockdown when lots of things are taken away from us to invest time and not just to sing, but to know the reality. What a friend we have in Jesus. Are you spending extra time with your friend? Not because you have to, but because lockdown has afforded us more time to and because we want to live in that friendship. Live in that friendship. Jesus wants to be a good friend to us and he is a good friend to us. Am I, are you a good friend to him? But also he's a good friend as the doctor of our souls who invites us to receive his healing. We're all sinners and he is ready to pardon and to heal. Jesus doesn't just heal us of our infirmities, our sin sicknesses at the cross. He's also concerned with every deep recess of our heart. If you've been a Christian for a long time, but still have some sicknesses, some uh, ailments, some offenses, some wounds, some dark recesses in our hearts, Jesus is that good doctor who persists with us, who knows what we need and has the ability to administer it to us in a healing and a transformative way. And all of this helps us to understand the fact that Jesus does not operate with us with a credit-based system. We don't have to take a ticket and wait for him. We don't have to accrue credit or merit to see him. Jesus wants us to think about this phrase to the first disciples and today as well. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is not saying he doesn't want us to work hard, to lay down our lives as an offering of sacrifice towards him. Jesus is not saying that. But what he is saying is externals will not convince me. I want your heart more than anything. Your heart first. Acts of service and worship flow from a new heart that I have won, that I have healed, that I know deeply. And this means, friends, when we are inviting and praying to invite our friends to Christianity Explored or seeking to speak of Jesus to our friends, don't assume that those outsiders, don't assume that those people who look like they will reject Jesus will. Because Jesus has a heart for the lowly, the downcast. He's the doctor, the physician of souls. And he's the friend of sinners. Who will you offer him to this week? Don't think he will reject anyone. Because he's the friend of sinners. Like me, like you. And like Matthew too.